0: Welcome to God is Open. I'm your host, Christopher Fisher. Today is going to be a very special podcast. We are going to be reviewing my book, God is Open, Examining the Open Theism of the Biblical Authors. This book is now available on Amazon.com and it's available both in a Kindle format and it is available in hard copy. You'll notice a price differential between the two. The Kindle version is like four bucks and the hard copy version is like 20. The reason for this is it's a pretty big book. It's like 126,000 words, which comes out to about 500 page book. And so both versions are pretty much being distributed at the lowest amount, and it's not about making profit. I'm not trying to maximize profit, and any profit that I do make in these books are just gonna be reinvested into advertising these books. So this is a non-profit venture, this book. God is Open is not about making money. It's about reaching the widest possible audience that it can. It's about the free flow of information and teaching. Even our website, we've never asked for money. We've never asked for donations. And I do this all on a voluntary basis without pay. And that's fine. It takes the money element out. It's not, I'm not like one of those preachers always begging for money. And I'm not like one of those people who just make a living off of doing this sort of stuff which then, you know, how why how are they going to be intellectually honest if their livelihood depends on them pleasing their audience? But the point of this book is to get people to start thinking in a different manner when approaching the Bible. When we approach the Bible, we really should be looking to see what the ancient author, the individual author was trying to teach in his relative context. If the author of Genesis is writing to Israel, they're probably trying to communicate in terms that these people understand. That they're probably trying to communicate straightforwardly and not cryptically. You look at how the text was written, what is trying to communicate, and with, in what genre this is. If it's a historical text, is it going to be filled with anthropomorphism and metaphor? Is it going to be filled with personifications and cryptic language? like like the gospel of John that's that's a little bit more esoteric cryptic than the other gospels it's a different style and has to be treated in a different way than the other gospels also a proverbs proverbs is just a list of proverbs some of the proverbs contradict each other and they're more they're more general rules of thumb than they are hard and fast laws that apply everywhere at every time know the genre of the book you're reading know what the author is trying to communicate, and treat the text on face value with integrity. The first part of my book is really about reading comprehension. How do we read? How do we understand phrases? What do they mean? How can we apply context to understanding our phrases that we read? And really, context controls everything. A single phrase can have multiple meanings in different contexts. Bob says about his wife, he says, she's the most attractive person in the world. You know, what does he mean by that statement? People can argue various sides. Oh, he's saying that he has the most beautiful wife, and no wife or woman is more beautiful than his. Another person could say, what he really means is that her personality and his personal relation to his wife makes her more attractive to him than any other lady, regardless of physical looks. Someone might say, well, he's being sarcastic, it's a joke. Another person could say, this guy's lying. See, context controls the meaning of statements. Fleeting phrases, short sentences can't be ripped out of the context and then be expected to be known in any absolute sense. So when people turn to Malachi and they say that God does not change, here, I'll read it real quick. Malachi 3.6, For I, the Lord, do not change. And then they'll cut it off right there. Mid-verse, without any context, they'll just quote this little string of words, and then they'll make entire theology statements, theoretical, they'll, they'll write paragraphs, they'll write books about God's immutability based on this fleeting phrase that they rip out of context, and they don't deal with the context. And does any of the context talk about absolute perfection, perfect being, theology, immutability in the absolute sense, where God is perfectly simple and absolute actuality. He's at, it, it, not, none of the context talks about that. So they rip this small phrase out of context and apply onto it absolutely an absurd amount of speculation on this text. And that's not how language works. That's not how we honestly deal with text. And that's very untrue to the authors of the Bible is to do this proof texting where you just rip little fragments out of context without regard to the context and then impose on it stuff that's not found in the context. Again, back to the Bob saying that his wife is attractive. That that small statement can mean so many things in so many different contexts that you just can't do that with short phrases, pull them out of context, and then assign any real meaning to it without an examination of the context in which it is said. When people do theology in this sort of way, they leave the realm of biblical scholarship. Then they are taking on speculative theology. They're taking on speculative metaphysics, and they leave the realm of biblical scholarship. So when these people claim to be Bible scholars, that's not what you're doing. That's you're just talking metaphysics and... That's not biblical scholarship. Where does the Bible talk about metaphysics? Where does the Bible define absolute perfect being philosophy? Where God is absolutely simple and pure actuality and absolutely immutable? Nothing in the Bible talks like that. There are no paragraphs that mirror those that you find in the Neoplatonists, in Plotinus, in Plato, and even in Origen, Augustine. All these people, they write in this Neoplatonic sense and you find no parallel phrases in the Bible. Like even pure actuality, they turn to God saying, I am who I am. And then they just assume all these random things on the text. I mean, Paul says, I am who I am. What is Paul doing? Is he claiming to be pure actuality? Is he t- claiming to be pure, perfect being, perfection, knowing everything? It's dishonest to the text to impose on it what's not in the context. And the context of God introducing himself, saying, I am who I am, or I am who I will be, or I will be who I will be, is not speculative Greek metaphysics. The context is God trying to convince one of his prophets, and he gets an argument with him. He has to try to weasel out of all Moses' excuses, and then finally, changes his plans and sends Aaron. So the context is God interacting, changing, leading Israel out of Egypt. It's all this relational, dynamic sense. And even in the name, I am who I am. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God is a relational God in the passage. So making it about speculative negative theology, that's not contextual. That's not biblical scholarship. The book starts with this, this premise that newer statements cannot override statements, and it's more likely the case that the newer statements are in light of the older statements. You can't use the Bible to proof text over other texts. One text does not just override previous texts. One author does just, just doesn't override previous authors. Authors need to be reviewed on their own in their own context. And to the extent that there's no contradictions, we, you should be looking within the same author and not trying to pit multiple authors against each other in a game of verse trumping. Clarifications are okay. Maybe there's an idiom that's explained somewhere else in the Bible that likely could be applied to the past, but you can't just verse trump. I also move into the realm of critical thinking. How do you critical think? What kind of perspectives do you need to take under consideration? When we're approaching text, we need to look at it from multiple perspectives. We need to find multiple possible meanings and figure out through context what is the most probable meaning. And we don't wanna import our biases on that text when we're reading. We don't wanna take our presuppositions and make it override possibilities. Let the text speak for itself. And letting the text speak for itself doesn't always mean taking everything with wooden literalness. There are things, and I talk about this in my book, With about metaphors, metaphors is a way to communicate where one object represents another. For example, if there's a phrase that God's wings protect us, you know, the text might be saying that God has wings, but it also might be a metaphorical usage. Like wings on birds can be used to shelter their chicks. They could shelter the little birds from the weather, from elements, from predators, and it could be a metaphorical use of these things like David's hand is on the river. That that phrase is used in the Bible. And what that means is not that he's sticking his hand in a river, in some water. That means that his kingdom extends all the way to this body of water. And metaphorically it says my hand or his hand is on the water. You see how that works? Metaphors is one one concept has parallels to another and is being used in place of that other concept. This is not The concept known as anthropomorphism and anthropomorphism is a word that's literally invented to discount the stories of the bible to just explain away why the bible so thoroughly talks about god changing being relational and not these ideas of negative theology so this term anthropomorphism was invented to be a mechanism to explain away how the bible's written and that's not valid metaphors are valid the, the wing metaphor, that's not an anthropomorphism. That could be a metaphor. It's a metaphor, not an anthropomorphism. And in the book, I try a parallel scenario. Let's say open theists came up with the term petamorphism, and that any phrase or statement about God to display him as unchanging is this figure of speech used to make God look more solid. And then we dismiss all the Calvinist proof texts with petamorphisms, people would see that's an invalid way to treat the text. It's not honest. Just inventing mechanisms to just discount your opponents without actually answering their criticisms, applying these double standards, and and that's the fallacy of special pleading. When you say, when we come to the Bible, we need to come to it in this very special sense that only applies to the Bible, no other ancient texts, no other literature that we come across, and we have to just impose these certain thoughts that we're bringing from outside the text we're going to impose those onto the bible that is special pleading it's not valid it's not biblical scholarship anthropomorphisms are not a thing personification is a thing i talk about the prime example of personification in the bible wisdom is personified in the proverbs wisdom is given characteristics and communicates with people and pre-exists the creation of the world And I talk about how that personification works, what it means, and how you could tell that it's not displaying history rather than being a personified episode to get people to understand how reason and wisdom works and functions. A very important concept is hyperbole and generalizations. They're everywhere in our language. And just take, for example, my last sentence I said, they are everywhere. Are they literally everywhere? Or do you understand when I say they are everywhere, that, just, that means they're just a lot of different places. That's how generalizations work, and that's how common they are, that when we use them, we don't even understand, it doesn't even register that we're using these generalizations and, and hyperboles. But the Calvinists, they think there's no such hyperboles in the Bible, unless it suits their theology. And all their texts, those are stone, literal, and to be taken in their negative theology sense with special exceptions like people will say oh god has all knowledge and that includes everything in the future even things that haven't happened yet except except for god doesn't have experience god doesn't have experiential knowledge like i know what it's like to be chris fisher and god doesn't but that's not diminishing of his knowledge because there's a special exception to what we mean by saying all knowledge It's these contradictions, this irrationality that that we see when we approach the Bible from a negative theology sense. It's all special pleading. It's all fallacious logic. So when Jesus' disciples walk up to Jesus, they say, Lord, you know all things. What's more likely? They think that he has total omniscience over all the future and everything that ever happened, Or, when God says to the king, you know all the hearts of men, all secrets, when the Bible writes of human beings that they know everything on earth, is it more likely that it's just a hyperbolic and a generalization? What's more probable? And in our previous podcast, we've already went over ancient omniscience, where you're going to find these hyperbolic or generalizations within other ancient literature that the Calvinists, arminian they're not going to take in the same way applied to other gods as they would apply it to Yahweh. If the same exact phrase and statement is found in the Bible attributed to God, they're going to take one in a negative theology sense and one in a generalized sense. They're going to understand one and then impose their own conceptions on the other. It, that's the this, this special pleading I'm talking about. But moving on, I then use the rest of the book to go through very specific passages, and I try to grab the context of these passages, go over the full passage, talk about the key phrases within those passages that are of interest. Like, for example, in Malachi, I, the Lord, do not change. What is the context? Is the context about negative theology, or is it saying that he doesn't change about something in particular? Is it to be understood in the light of biblical history that precedes it? Or is it to be understood in light of this negative theology that's never presented anywhere in the Bible? And of course, we all know the answer is it's to be understood in context. In the context, God is saying that I'm not going to revoke my promise to Israel. I'm not going to change and do that. And often when you get these statements about God not lying or repenting, it's in the context of his specific promises to Israel as a people group. And it's not in context of this negative theology, never change in any at sense whatsoever. It's not, not that. So I start with Genesis, and a lot of my book focuses on the Old Testament. And the Old Testament is incredibly interesting to me. It's just this ancient perspective, these ancient writings. And any ancient writing is very interesting to me. Even uh, writings from other cultures, other... Religions, just just the way that they thought, the way that they described the world, it's very much of interest to try to figure out how they viewed their surroundings, their culture, how events happened, what their concepts of God was. So I talk about Genesis one. Of course, you got God creating the earth, and we have a podcast on Genesis one. And there's this reoccurring theme in Genesis one where God says his words, create, and then he evaluates his creation. It's this sequential event that results every single time in God evaluating what he made, figuring out how well it was made, in case perhaps he might need to redo it. And everything's good. He makes a good creation. I talk about the fall from grace and the incident in the Garden of Eden. And no, I don't think it's a spiritual death that's being described in the text if you looked at the contextual clues. We look at Genesis 6, and Genesis 6 is incredibly important to biblical history. The flood is referenced throughout the Bible, and this is a major event in the history of the world. We talk about Sodom and Gomorrah, and this is a very interesting passage, Genesis 18, because in this passage, God is said to go verify reports that are brought to him, which suggests, as Bruce Ware he, basically flat-out states that text suggests that God does not have present knowledge of the events in Sodom and he's right and he's right and so how do we deal with that text how do we look at that text how do we understand the author what that author is trying to communicate Exodus of course we talked a little bit about Exodus 3 God introducing himself to Israel remember Exodus says that before that time Yahweh was not known to Israel And so Exodus 3 is really Yahweh's introduction to Israel. This leads into Exodus 4. They're basically the same story, and they work together very well. We talk about Exodus 32. Exodus 32, if you have not heard that podcast, I suggest going back and listening to that podcast, understand that podcast. That's a very important text because there's so many future authors in the Bible, in the biblical record, that comment on the events that happened. So you got insider biblical accounts of how they took that text. And here's a hint. It's not in any negative theology way. God is interacting with Moses and changes based on the petitions to him, based on the arguments Moses makes. A Bible study, of course, would not be complete without an overview of Judges, kind of uh, the concepts that are being advocated various repentances and the cycle of rebellion and salvation that God gives throughout Judges. We talk also about Saul and Saul's relationship to God. Remember, Saul is one of the two things that God regrets his own decisions about. It's not God regretting people sinning. It's God regretting his own action. In the Genesis case, regretting his own action making man. In the Saul case, regretting his own action making Saul the king the book of Job is tackled. The concepts that are found in the book of Job, and it's not an evangelical sense that you end up with after you read this chapter. Read the chapter, evaluate this chapter, and it explores what's going on, why it's going on, who are the characters, what are their motivations, and how does that work together. This book spends a lot of time in the Psalms, and the Psalms are the raw theology of ancient Israel. This is where They really get down to brass tacks and express their feelings in ways that are sometimes almost impious towards God. This is when they're hurt, or they're in pain, or even when they're happy, when God's been doing stuff for them, interacting with them. Here's where you see their raw theology. And very important to this conversation is Psalms 139. We have a podcast on this, and it goes over it in detail. There's a full article. Basically, the whole chapter should be available on God is open somewhere. I need to make sure that's accurate. But, but very important to understand, very important to figure out what's being said. And guess what? Modern translations do not quite translate it right, per the mouth of John Calvin. The next section covers the Exilic Prophets, very key passages. Jeremiah 18 is covered. Ezekiel 18, the Nicolari, Hosea, Jonah, Malachi 3. Remember, we're talking about Malachi 3, and they, the negative theologians say, oh, that just means God is perfectly immutable. Is that the case? What does the context say? And what if the context is God repenting? How does that work? How does that work with that little God does not change phrase, taken in a negative theology sense? Isaiah 5, very important the parable of the vineyard, God does not get what he expects in this parable, and it's meant to mirror real life. Parables are meant to have corollaries to real life where they explain something to the audience. The New Testament, we cover, you know, election within Jesus. We talk about the inevitability of the crucifixion. Did that have to happen? Did Jesus think that uh, that had to happen? or did Jesus portray differently? That's really important as well. Romans 9, that's the bedrock of Calvinism. All the Calvinists, they turn there and they say, this is our theology. Well, not quite. You have to take it contextually. What was Paul's ministry? What was he trying to teach? Why was he trying to teach it? And to whom? Were they hostile? Were they friendly? And what is he trying to communicate to them? And what do they know already? And what don't they like about what he's preaching? Contextually, what is Paul doing? And Romans 11 is very critical to the context of Romans 9. So we cover that as well, because in it, he explains what's going on. Colossians 2, I think this is very critical for understanding Paul's interaction with the Gnostics, with the Platonists, with people of different persuasions. And he really attacks philosophy in Colossians 2. He attacks these ideas that try to separate the divine from the physical. Where, you know, the the Gnostics thought that Jesus couldn't uh, eat food. They thought he didn't poop. Stuff like that. Because those things are physical and debasing. And Paul's saying the divine can be physical. He says the fullness of God was in Jesus bodily. And that is just not allowed in Platonism. Of course, no study would be complete without talking about John, First uh, John, very esoteric text in there, and also Revelation. Revelation is very apocalyptic in nature, describing a lot of what we've already found in the exilic prophets, this merging of the heaven and the earth, this coming kingdom of God on earth. My last chapter sums it all up. Remember, I'm not approaching this text with systematic theology in mind. So the last chapter is used to wrap everything up and and poses the question, if we want to try to build a systematic theology about God from these various texts, what kind of concepts can we put pull together? What kind of commonalities do we see in these texts where we could really say this is systematic in the text, that these are the attributes described? And we talk about them. God is one. God is personal. God is impassioned. He's powerful, just, merciful, and loving everlasting, and he's not negative theology. There's no concept of negative theology in the Bible. You don't find that there. You don't find these treatises on metaphysics. It is not a systematic theology book, especially not in the Platonic sense. Overall, I believe that this book is a very important contribution to the open theist general body of literature. It takes the text seriously. It treats the text with dignity. It looks at the text from a critical thinking perspective and it doesn't try to force things onto the text a lot of open theists they'll try to force their ideas of of love on the text like Boyd has his hermeneutic where he he reads everything in light of Jesus so if there's anything in the old testament that he finds appalling he'll just override it and say that that didn't actually really happen Thomas J Ord will just pull out the various texts that fit his concept and say the other one's aren't quite useful to his concepts of God. And that's self-admitted. I'm not saying anything scandalous here. But what happens when we let the authors speak for themselves? And what happens when we try to recreate ancient theology? Not create our own theology, not create a systematic theology, just looking at and trying to accurately report what the ancients believed. Who does that? Who does that? There, There are certain critical scholarship like Christine Hayes in the secular world, Rita Aslan, Bart Ehrman for the most part tries to do that. I understand these people have some biases and stuff. Walter Bergerman, Prethium. But other than that, it's like nobody does that. Nobody cares about accuracy and being true to the text. Rather than what they want is they want some sort of a systematic ministry, some sort of systematic message. Then they then they press towards their own agendas, rather than the agendas of the biblical authors. What do the biblical authors care about? What did they write about? What were their focuses? Those should be accurately represented. N.T. Wright has these series on the Romans, and he talks about the book of Romans, and he, he points out that a lot of people come to the book of Romans, and they try to grab things out that they're looking for, rather than reading it in light of letting the text speak to them. Letting the text create its own priorities, and that's really the way we need to approach the entire Bible is to let the priorities of the biblical authors let those priorities shine rather than our own agendas. You take Ezekiel, what is his priorities? His priorities is getting Israel's repentance is communicating messages that he has received from God, and sometimes very dynamic and sometimes very outspoken and eccentric ways. He's a very eccentric prophet. R- read Ezekiel the entire chapter. he does some interesting things. but anyways, get the book, read the book. It talks about a lot of interesting things. it presents a lot of different perspectives than you what you're probably used to. And if you can't afford the book, just contact me. I'll try to get you a digital copy. Uh, the hard copy looks pretty nice, about 500 pages and it'd go very good with any collections on open theism. If you have any questions or comments on this podcast, feel free to put that on the God is Open webpage or start a thread on the God is Open Facebook companion page. Thank you for listening.